And so I kind of, a sort of word of kind of confession before we start. I kind of, I, I see the kind of preacher's job as, as, as kind of like a daddy penguin. Okay. I, I suppose it could be a mummy penguin as well, but because um, I think they both do this. They take it in turns. I think they go out to sea and they catch the food um, and then they bring it home uh, and then they give it kind of like half digested um, to the baby penguins um, so the baby penguins can eat. So that's what preachers do. They, they go, out, go out during the week, go out to sea, um, and um, study the scriptures and pray and reflect and, um, and, and read the commentaries and, and bring you back some food kind of pre-digested for you um, so, so that you can eat it. Okay, so now you're going to never think about preaching the same way ever again. That is, <coughs> that is going to stick in your mind. And next time you go, you visit a church, you can say to the preacher, I think of you as a daddy penguin. Okay, well, the problem this week is I've bitten off more than I can chew. Okay, so I don't really feel like I managed to eat this and digest it. And what, you, what every preacher wants to do is bring it back to you in a nice kind of like... Um, you know, something that's, that, that's um, edible and accessible and, and, and memorable, and um, I'm just not sure I'm going to achieve that today because, like I say, I'm bitten off more than I can chew. But we're going to start, let me just start with a couple of thoughts before we get into the, um, get into the text. If salvation had been our plan, okay, rather than God's plan, how many pictures of Jesus would you have given the world? Or how many accounts of Jesus would you, would you have given people? I don't know about you, but I think we probably just would have said one. You know, one kind of accurate, you know, account of Jesus. It's enough, isn't it? How many do we see in the New Testament? Yeah, four or four, four plus, you know. And okay, so we understand Matthew, Mark, and Luke are drawing on some, um, some sources in common, but, but we get different accounts. And then, of course, we get, you know... Um, <laughs> Writings of, of, of Paul and James. Okay, they're not the life of Jesus, but but you get you get four different accounts plus um, other bits, some other eyewitnesses. Interesting, isn't it? How many pictures of Jesus do we get in the Old Testament? Okay, so we've got four plus kind of in the New Testament. How many? How many in the Old Testament? How many? How many pictures of Jesus have you seen in Exodus already? You knew this was coming, didn't you? I was actually going to ask you kind of to do something. Name me something we've already seen that's a picture of Jesus out of the story of Exodus. You should be able to do at least one. I mean, there are plenty, but you should be able to do at least one. Be brave. Manna, well done. Bread from heaven. Bread of life, manna. Um, Jesus says he's the bread of life. Uh, manna. Tabernacle, yeah, well done. Tabernacle, temple. Jesus, Jesus, we're told in John, he came and tabernacled amongst us. The tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. Saw that last week. Fantastic. Water coming out of the rock. Fantastic. People have been concentrating. It's amazing. <laughs> it's just well done. And, and uh, yeah, the struck rock out of which the water of life flows. Yeah, it's a picture of Jesus. Any, any more? Sacrifices. Yeah, the whole sacrifice, sacrificial system. You know, going back to the um, to the Passover lamb. Oh, thank you. That's warmed my heart. That has you be, you've, you've been listening and going to, going to home groups and things. Well done. Um, burning bush, possibly. You know, it, it, it's certainly a picture of, of the God who is above us and yet with us, and that's Jesus. Uh, he is the Passover lamb. Uh, he is manna, the bread of life. He is water of life from the struck rock. Um, he is a greater prophet and mediator than Moses. Perhaps that one we don't see so clearly. 
he's the kind of host of a salvation meal. Um, remember the kind of the elders are sitting on top of the mountain. That is salvation, sitting down for a meal in the presence of God. Uh, Jesus is the host of the salvation meal. Uh, he's the law keeper. That's perhaps um, uh, not so clear. He's the temple or the tabernacle. Um, why? Why does God give us? Why does God give us so many pictures? Just in the just in a few chapters of Exodus, uh, we've seen these, and that's not an exhaustive list. Some of them are kind of foreshadows of Jesus. So, um, uh, you, you know, the tabernacle, and sometimes we learn by contrast. So we see what Moses couldn't do, um, Jesus could do. So sometimes they're, they're, they're analogies. They give the shape of something coming forward, like the Passover lamb. Um, sometimes we get uh, a picture of something that the Old Testament couldn't do, uh, Jesus, Jesus can. And why do we get all these pictures? God, God obviously uh, considers them necessary. Because each of them adds something to our understanding. Each of them adds something to our understanding of what Jesus has done. Another facet. And today we're going to look at another fundamental uh, picture of what Jesus has done. And this is the work, work of the priest. And so we're going to read from, from uh, chapter 28, verse 1. And what I'm going to do is we're just going to read through the text and I'll, I'll break into it. And we'll offer a few thoughts um, along the way. Partly because, as I say, I've struggled to digest this this week, but also partly because I, I, th- I, think, I have this ambition that we kind of read as, as much of this as we possibly can do. Uh, you know, I want you to be able to go away and say that even if you didn't read it on your own, we, we read it or you read the bulk of it. Um, and, and the, but we can't really do that all in, all in one block or we'll just all kind of um, fall asleep. There are some sheets with some notes on. They're, they're on the edge. Um, oh, those ones are all gone. Um, some at the back if you just want to keep notes rather than the word search today. So here we go. Um, chapter 28, verse 1. Let Aaron, your brother, be brought to you from among the Israelites with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eliza and Ithamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honour Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a a turban and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so that they may serve me as priests. Make them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. So we get this clue as we start that Aaron is, he has to have clothes, that there is, that there is an outfit um, to being a priest. And this is the, the outfit. The first thing is, is an ephod. Actually, I, Ian, can we just go back to the PowerPoint for a moment? And here's the outfit. So you get a little bit of a, a, little bit of a, a picture. Um, you can see un- underneath there's a kind of white linen tunic. Um, on top of that, there's a blue robe. On top of this thing, which is, is the thing called the ephod, which is this kind of like tabard-like thing which goes over it. On top of the tabard, there's a, there's a breastplate, a breast piece, which kind of hangs as a square um, in front uh, of the ephod. On that are 12 stones with the names of the, of the tribes of Israel. On his head, uh, there is to be a turban. On the turban is a plate, which has a gold plate, says, Holy to the Lord. On the shoulders are two onyx 
stones, each inscribed with, with um, six names of, of the tribes of Israel. So that's, that's the picture. On the bottom, there are bells and pomegranates. Um, we'll come back to that in a minute. Thanks, Ian. Back to the text. So make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen, the work of skilled hands. It is to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it, of one piece with the ephod and made with gold and with blue, purple and scarlet yarn and with finely twisted linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave them with the names of the sons of Israel. Six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones, the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings, fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Make gold filigree settings, two braided chains of pure gold lacquer rope, and attach the chains um, to the settings. So every time, part of his outfit, as part of his outfit, every time um, Aaron goes uh, into the tabernacle, he is carrying the names uh, of Israel before the Lord, before the Ark, uh, in, into the very um, presence uh, of God, and, and that's the purpose. That's the purpose. Aaron carries the people into God's presence, and I guess effectively he kind of. He intercedes from them there. He looks for God's will and he intercedes. And it's reinforced by this about the breast piece, verse 18. Fashion a breast piece for making decisions. The work of skilled hands make it like the ephod, gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarn. It is to be square, span long, span wide, folded double. Mount four rows of precious stones on it. Carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, turquoise, lapis lazuli, emerald, jacinth, agate, and amethyst, topaz, onyx, jasper, mount them in gold filigree. There are to be 12 stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the 12 tribes. For the breastmeats, make braided chains of pure gold like a rope, make two rings for it, and fasten them um, to the two corners of the breastpiece. Fasten the two gold chains to the rings at the corners of the breastbeat and the other ends of the chains to the two settings, attaching them to the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front. This is kind of a long way of saying, kind of like hanging it from the shelves on a bit of string, um, except a bit more glorious. Let's go down to verse 29. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Isn't that lovely? Every time he goes in, he's got these 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Every time he goes in um, to the Lord's presence, he bears the whole of the people with him, represented um, by, these, uh, by these 12 stones. It's, it's a memorial I was trying to work out what a memorial is, and you kind of like it's, it's really helpful, you know, theological dictionaries to tell you it's something for remembering something. You know, it's... Um, but as, as he goes in, with the tribes of Israel over his heart, I, I guess it's a sign that the Lord will remember them. The Lord will kind of remember them. I don't think... Um, 
Aaron needs reminding. Maybe he does need reminding that he goes in. He's a representative, but I think he knows that. I think it's that the Lord will be reminded, not that the Lord really needs reminding, of course. But it's just a picture that the Lord will remember um, his people. Okay, make a robe, uh, verse 31, entirely of blue cloth. Um, some people say blue is the colour of grace. I've got no idea where that comes from, so I can't really uh, tell you whether that's true or not. It should be a woven edge like a columnate com- pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates that alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. have to remember all the way through that the background to this is we said that the Lord is volcanically dangerous. The Lord is pathologically um, dangerous, pathologically opposed to sin. He is dangerous um, to sinners. And so Aaron tinkles as he goes. And it does, the Lord doesn't need to, to, to be reminded that he's coming, but, but Aaron needs to be reminded. Has there anything I've forgotten to make myself right, have I, any, of these, uh, any of the sacrifices that I've not done properly, not taken advantage of before I stand before the Lord? Because if I st- stand before the Lord wrongly, what's going to happen to me? He'll die. He'll be struck down by, by, the, by the Lord. Because Aaron's a sinner too. Verse 36, make a plate of pure gold and engrave it on it as a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to attach it to the turban. It's to be on the front. It'll be on Aaron's forehead. And he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate. Whatever their gifts may be, it will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. I guess all these pictures kind of start to come together and reinforce them. It's a picture that he's consecrated. And also, it says here, the reason he's got this um, uh, seal on his head, it's so that he can be a representative and he can bring Israel's sacrifices and they'll be accepted. Then it has a tunic, verse 39, of fine linen. Made by an embroiderer, make tunic sashes, caps at Aaron's sons to give them dignity and honour. So if you were going to come before the Lord, if you were going to kind of like, you know, go and meet the mayor, you'd probably put a tie on, if you were me. I don't know whether I'd get as far as a suit, probably would, you know. But if you were going to like a Queen's Garden party, you'd put a tie on, wouldn't you? You know, I'd put a suit on. I might even hire a nicer suit than the one I've already got. But if you're going before the Lord, it, it it is intrinsic isn't it, that you come with, with, with dignity and honour because he is the ultimate dignitary and he is the ultimate honourable one. And then finally, 42, uh, make linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from his waist to the thigh. And Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. And this is to be a lasting ordinance. So Aaron has a pair of long johns. Okay, you know, we snigger. Um, but actually, and we've already seen this before, we've already sniggered before. Um, nakedness is an issue. 
because nakedness is actually, you go back, goes back to Eden, isn't it? And nakedness is just, has become that kind of sign of, uh, of shame. And Aaron, they can't come and uh, bring shame before the Lord. Okay, it's a picture, isn't it? What's it a picture of? What's it a picture of? You should know by now. You were really good earlier on. Okay, a picture of Jesus. Thank you. Aaron needs these clothes to give him dignity and honour. Jesus comes into the Father's presence in his own dignity, um, in his own honour. Jesus doesn't need bells on his robe because uh, he is the one human being who is safe before the majesty of God. And Jesus is holy in himself. He is the one human being um, totally consecrated to his Father's will, so he doesn't need a turban um, with a, a plate on it. Okay, so clothes. Need an outfit. Okay, which is just a picture of Christ, and Christ doesn't need the outfit because he has all these things inherent in himself. But then various things have to happen to Aaron before he can become a priest. This is what you are to do, verse 20, uh, 29 verse 1, to consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two rams without defect, and from the finest wheat flour make round loaves without yeast, thick loaves without yeast, and with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves without yeast, and brushed with olive oil, and put them in a basket and present them in it, along with the bowl and the two rams." Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them. So the first thing that happens is, is, is they wash. He, he's got to wash, hasn't he? Um, before he's consecrated um, to the task of being a priest, he himself has to be clean. So he has to wash because he can't put these priestly garments on before he washes. Then take the garments and dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe, the ephod, the ephod itself, the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred a sacred emblem, and then take the anointing oil and anoint him. Bring his sons, dress them in tunics, fasten caps on them, tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. So you notice they are being consecrated, but they are setting up a priesthood that will go on and on and on. Then you shall ordain Aaron, bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on his head. And this is the pattern of uh, of all sacrifice, um, all Old Testament sacrifice, is that whether or not uh, the hand is, is, is laid on, on the head, uh, the concept is, is that the sin of, of the bringer is, is transferred to the animal and then the animal dies in their place. That's the, the concept of sacrifice. So verse 11, slaughter it in the Lord's presence at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood, put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour out the rest at the base of the altar. Then take all the fat of the internal organs, covering the liver, both kidneys with fat on them, burn them on the altar. But burn the bull's flesh in its hide and its intestines outside the camp. It's a sin offering. The so first thing that happens is that an offering is made for, for Aaron's sin, for his own sin. Then take one of the rams, Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it, take its blood, splash it against the sides of the altar, cut the ram into pieces, wash the internal organs and the legs, putting them with the head and the other pieces, then burn the entire ram on the altar. It's a burnt offering. 
to the Lord a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. So get your head around this. Okay, there is, there is a sin offering that deals with Aaron's sin. There is a burnt offering. I think a burnt offering is a sign of a wholehearted um, consecration, a wholehearted giving over um, to relationship with the Lord and, and giving over to the, to the task in hand. And then take the other ram. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it, take some of its blood, put it on the lobes of the right ears of Aaron and his sons, on the thumbs of their right hand, and on the big toes of their right feet. Splash them against the sides of the altar. Take some of the uh, blood on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and their garments. Then he and his sons uh, and their garments will be consecrated. Take from this ram the fat, the fat tail, the fat of the internal organs, the covering of the liver, both kidneys, with the fat on them and the right thigh. This is the ram for the ordination. From the basket of bread made without yeast, which is before the Lord, take one round loaf, one thick loaf, with olive oil mixed in, one thin loaf. Put all these in the hands of Aaron's son and wave them. Wave them before the Lord, okay, as, as a wave offering. Then take them from their hands, burn them on the altar, along with the burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a food offering presented to the Lord. And after you take the breast of the ram for Aaron's ordination, wave it before the Lord as a wave offering, and it will be your share. Note, that's important. So consecrate those parts of the ordination ram that belong to Aaron and his sons. The breast that was waved, the thigh that was presented, this is always to be the regular share from the Israelites for Aaron and his sons. It is... The contribution the Israelites are to make to the Lord from their fellowship offerings. Does it really need to be this complicated? Does it, does it really need to be this precise? And I guess those questions are is God really that holy? And does God really know what he's doing? Well, of course he does. And so there needs to be, these are the three types of offering through the Old Testament. Sin offering deals with sin. Burnt offering talks about wholeheartedness and consecration. Uh, And the wave offering or the peace offering or the fellowship offering is the one that Aaron gets to eat. It it is a sign um, that he has uh, fellowship with the God. So three offerings giving you three different pictures. His sin's dealt with. He's completely consecrated. He has fellowship with the Lord. And then there were kind of seven days with seven bulls to purify the altar. I won't read that through. But why does it take so long? Again, why, you know, seven bulls, seven days. Lord, is, is, is this not kind of overkill to kind of purify, purify the altar? Well, the message is this, and it's just getting pushed home again and again and again, isn't it? God is holy beyond anything we can create with our hands. And actually a question mark is beginning to form. Can we really consecrate anything? Can we really, by our hands or by anything that we do, make something holy enough so that it can stand in God's very presence? And then from that point on, I won't read it, they had to take um, two lambs with grain and oil, one in the morning, one in the evening, and that is, to be the, that is to be the regular sacrifice. 
Why all the fuss? Well, let's just read verse 44, 29 verse 44. Or actually 42. Thanks, Ian. For the generations to come, this burnt offering, that's the, the daily offerings, is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet with you and speak to you. And there also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Is all this worth it at the end of the day? Is all this worth it? And I guess I'm going to ask you the same question at the end about us. Is, was all this palaver, was it worth it? What is the result? The Lord says, I will meet you and I will speak with you. We talked about Samuel earlier on, didn't we? What, what more, what higher privilege, what more... What is more important? What more could you aspire to than meeting with and hearing the living God, the creator of the universe, and have him dwell with you? What is kind of more fundamental? And that's why the next thing in chapter 30, they go on to have the incense altar, um, uh, Smoke before the Lord. It's a little picture of what happened on Mount Sinai. And then the people are asked to make a choice. Chapter 30, verse 11. Just pick this up with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelite to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give half a shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 giras. The half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less. When you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives, receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. So they're given these instructions. They've been given these instructions for a, t- a tabernacle. All these things made of gold, silver, and bronze. They're given been instructions for how to uh, appoint, anoint, and consecrate um, a priest. And now the question is, do you want in? Do you want in? There's a choice to be made. Do you, do you want to be part of this? Do you not? And, and if, you, if you want to be part of it, you, 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 give, um, you give a half shekel. Because there is a cost. We're not talking about a, a cost to earn your own atonement, but there is a cost uh, to being in as opposed to being out. Because there is a cost to running the priesthood um, and creating the tabernacle. And that's a principle that runs through to the, to the New Testament. There, there is a cost uh, to what we do. Um, and that's why we give an, an offering um, earlier on. It's not that, you, that somehow you buy your salvation, um, but the enjoyment of your salvation um, through the preaching, through the groups that go on on the Sunday, through sitting on nice chairs and through the building being warm, um, there is a cost. 
And your choice, I guess, as to whether you, you're part of that cost is kind of mirrors the choice of whether you're actually part, uh, you're part of the whole salvation uh, process. So, if we go back to the PowerPoint, but I want you in your Bibles to turn to Hebrews. Chapter 9. Kind of part of me wants to say, I apologize for reading more scripture to you, but how can I apologize for reading more scripture to you? But it's just a sign that we've taken a really big chunk and maybe, like we say, bitten off more than we can chew. But I hope there's a payoff at the end. Okay. Hebrews chapter 9 very helpfully explains what this means for us. And the writer of Hebrews says this, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lamp stand on the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. You remember that? We were there last week. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the gold uh, altar of incest, the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, air and staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And above the ark were the cherubim of the glory. You remember that? Overshadowing the atonement cover. But we can't discuss these things in detail now. Hallelujah. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people he had com- uh, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. But listen to the explanation. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. What does he mean by the most holy place? He doesn't mean the earthly most holy place. He means the heavenly most holy place. He means the real most holy place, uh, the place where God dwells, the place uh, where God's throne room is. And he said, as long as the priest was going into this copy of the most holy place, he was showing that nobody had yet gone into the real most holy place and made atonement. And he says, this is an illustration, a really important word, verse 9, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating, what? That the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. You might want to read that again. It's just a picture. The fact that these sacrifices had to be brought again and again and again is a picture of the fact that they don't work. They don't work. They are not effective at clearing the conscience. And I think what he means by the conscience is he means, he means they cannot genuinely remove sin. Um, from the soul or wherever we... They cannot remove sin um, from our uh, account. They cannot. They're only a matter of food and drink and, and various ceremonial washings, external regulations of applying until the time of the new order. Oh, my goodness. There we've just seen it. The priest and the offerings day by day by day. Uh, but it's a picture. And what is it a picture of? That they don't work. Oh, my goodness. But... When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect 
tabernacle. Where is that? What is that? It's a place not made by human hands. That is to say, it's not a place of this creation. And he didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. So Jesus didn't, when he came, he didn't go into the temple. He went into that thing of which that the temple was a picture of which is he went into the very throne room of God and he didn't bring the blood of an animal. What did he bring? He went there bringing his own blood. The sacrifice of of his own life. And by doing that, obtains eternal redemption. Lasting, permanent rescue. Blood of goats, the bulls of ashes of a heifer, sprinkled on those who are ceremonial and clean, sanctify them so they're outwardly clean. So it says the Old Testament sacrifices made you kind of outwardly clean so you could carry on uh, being part of the people of Israel. But how much more then will the blood of Christ who entered through the eternal, uh, sorry, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So Jesus, those old sacrifices, they're just outward cleansing, outward ritual cleansing. Jesus is the, the real cleansing because he, is, he was an unblemished sacrifice, lived perfectly from day one until his death, and he offered himself. And that is the only offering that can deal with sin. But it does. It cleanses our consciences. In other words, it actually deals with sin so that we can stand there before God and in conscience say, I am clean and I have a right to be here because of what Christ has done. I don't know what your consciences are saying. The conscience is a weighing up mechanism. It takes one thing and weighs it up against the other. So it kind of, what it does today is it takes you and it weighs you up against the law of God. And whenever you do that and you look at Christ and you weigh yourself up against the, the, the law of God, you are going to have failed. Probably quite recently. But what Christ does is, we, is that we, essentially what happens is that God weighs what Christ has done against the law. And says, yeah, that's 100%. Well done. You're accepted. It's brilliant. But reading on. Where should we pick it up? Let's pick it up at verse 19. When Moses had proclaimed every command uh, of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll on the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. And I love this verse next. He says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Listen to this. This is amazing. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. There was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. 
now to appear for us in God's presence. You know that picture of the priest? He, he appeared in God's presence for the ark with the stones over his heart. Jesus now goes into, into God's presence with kind of, I suppose, you know, a breastplate made of millions and millions of stones, little shiny stones, uh, and one of them's got your name on it. He goes into God's presence bearing your name. And in verse 25, and he didn't offer, he didn't go there to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest does, with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. He doesn't go repeatedly. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Christ appeared once, died once, and it is finished. He appeared once, died once, and as he says on the cross, it is finished. Once is enough. Christ didn't need to be prepared by sacrifices for himself. He comes unblemished, and he comes once is enough. Once Christ, once on the cross, has paid for you. It has paid once. It has paid all. It, it never needs to be paid for again. If you trust in Christ this morning, you need to hear that. It, whatever you do, you might break fellowship with God, but it can never be paid for again. It has been paid for already, and it is paid for once. Jesus will return, but not because he needs to come and make any more sacrifices. But he'll come to return and to gather us up and take us home, as we talked about last week. So I love this. I kind of guess I've spoken about this already. This picture of the priest going in with these stones, I guess that's at the heart of it. Jesus is gone. Jesus goes into heaven effectively with a little stone with your name on it over his heart. I think that should cause you uh, to, re- to rejoice. But I wonder, well, you know, what are you struggling with? Now, a couple of families um, struggling with, with bereavement. No people struggling with uh, work issues, people struggling with anxiety, people struggling with relationships in families. You have a great high priest. Approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. Actually, if we, if we read back a little there, it says, because we have a great high priest. Come before God's throne of grace with confidence so that you can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Whatever it is, and we'll spend some time in a moment. So I want to ask you a question. Why would you you choose to live outside of the presence of God? Find out next time that Israel are really quick 
to kind of lay it all down and try something else. But it's just a question that bugged me this week, and it was really, I thought, well, maybe this is just me making it up, but actually um, reading commentary by a great old saint, I think he died in the last 12 months, Alec Mateer, saying the same thing. Is, is this not actually the fundamental, fundamental choice of life? Is it not actually the fundamental choice of every day? Am I going to live in the presence of God or, or am I not? And actually, this is the fundamental issue of life. Am, am I going to know God? Am I not going to know God? Am I going to choose to be in his presence? Am I not going to choose to be in his presence? This is the, this is the fundamental issue of life. And actually, it shouldn't surprise us because it goes back to God. So this is, this is my question. Why would I not want to live in the presence of God if the way is open? Okay, and the answer is this, because I'm an idiot. Okay. Why am, I an idiot? why am I an idiot? Because sin makes idiots of us all. And why am I an idiot? Because I'm a son of Adam. And what did Adam choose? He had, the, he had a choice between autonomy and the presence of God. Okay. Self-rule, doing what he wanted. The choice between autonomy and the presence of God, and he chose autonomy. <coughs> what a stupid choice. What an idiot. Okay, but I'm a son of Adam. And day by day, why do I choose not to come live in the presence of God? Well, for some underlying sense that actually it kind of demeans my kind of own authority to run my life my own way. What an idiot. But I guarantee that because you are sons and daughters of Adam's too, that you trod the same path. Why would you not want oh why would you not want to live in the presence of God today, tomorrow? Well, there's only really one answer to that, and it's because we like autonomy more than we like submitting to God's rule. But the choice is the choice is huge. I don't know about you. Maybe you kinda help me be less of an idiot. And encourage one another just as we go through, go through the weeks. God has opened a door to his throne room. He has opened it uh, through Christ. We have a great priest uh, over, the, um, over the house of God. We'll go through the door and approach the throne of grace with confidence to find whatever it is we need for our time of need.